a classic song. Heart and Soul launched to power to global stardom in 1987 and kicked off a string of hits for the group before they sadly disbanded five years later. But the voice of T'Pau kept going and 30 years on is still delighting fans with those monster hits. So here to talk about her life after that thing she did, please welcome Carol Decker. Carol, lovely to see you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, I just just came out of the gym, so I'm feeling a bit, you know, proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> Happy belated birthday for last weekend. Um, it was an auspicious day, as you shared on Twitter. You were opening presents in bed while watching the accession of King Charles. Yes, it was my 65th birthday, and uh, I can't quite believe the numbers. I keep writing them down and looking at them. I don't know how I got there. I thought everybody died after 40. You know, I just didn't think anyone got... <laughs> when I was young and yeah and um it was an auspicious day and a weird day wasn't it I was actually gigging on the 8th of September the day that the Queen passed hmm. so that was a kind of a weird one as well the that was on the Thursday and the venue came to us in our dressing room and said you know what do you want to do so we, we just went on stage and chatted with the crowd first and made sure they felt comfortable going ahead with a rock show it just felt inappropriate in a way but the queen was all about keep calm and carry on wasn't she so we decided with the audience and between the band and the venue that we would do a show for her we um had a minute silence a standing ovation for her and we dedicated china in your hand to her and sang it loud and proud and then two days later it was my birthday and i'm watching prince charles accede to the throne or ascend to the throne whatever you whatever the correct word is and it, it was just it's just been an odd odd but memorable week in which to have your birthday for sure yeah and you've met the king a few times haven't you starting when you were quite young on a yts scheme yes <laughs> yeah um well, i was working it was yts it was the doll anyway and i was on some kind of work scheme and i was working at the ironbridge gorge museum on the art team and um, we were also working alongside a team of young offenders who'd come from Borstal and they were working as well doing rehabilitation there wasn't much difference between us to be honest but the day that we knew the then Prince of Wales was coming to open the project we were all working on which was like um, a scaled down pig smelting like an iron age pig smelting thing we were all in our art school stuff. So, you know, we had like, um, I remember I had, um, I'd painted my Doc Martens different colours and I was in paint spattered overalls and I was trying to look all arty. And all the Ballstool kids were all suited and booted. So when he addressed his speech and then he turned to us, the art team, and went, and I'm so very proud of those of you who are trying to put your life back on the right tracks. <laughs> <laughs> Because we look like the scruffy urchins up to no good. It was very funny. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. Okay. You've just celebrated 35 years of T'Pau. Congratulations. But your road to fame was a bit of a long slog because it took six years before you got a record deal. And by that time, you were 27, 28, which is quite old in music standards, isn't it? Because I can't think of any act making their debut at that age these days. No, um, quite right. Well, I lived out in Shropshire, so there wasn't really a scene out there, you know, and there was no, obviously, no internet, no way of building your YouTube channel or or whatever kids do these days. 
And my then boyfriend, Ron Rogers, and I, uh, long story short, we were in two local bands. We got together personally and professionally, started writing songs and trying to get somewhere. My dad lent us some money for some home recording equipment. So we just focused on making our demo tapes and sending them off to record companies with um, a little biog and a picture and stuff. And we sort of came close but no cigar so many times we had so many record companies sniff around us and nearly give us a deal and we did get a small deal with MCA Publishing who after a year dropped us and gave us all our songs back they hated us so much (laughs) they saw no future (laughs) and those were the ones that went on to become big hits so no 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 and then finally we get a deal with Uh, Kingsley Ward, who owns Rockfield Studios. Now, Rockfield Studios is in Monmouth, again, a little Welsh village, just 60 miles south of Shropshire. But it was, Kingsley had a window on the world because it was one of the most um, famous and established residential recording studios in the world. So, you know, the biggest example I can give you out of the many artists that worked there was Bohemian Rhapsody was recorded there. So that's, you know, amazing. So we get a production deal with Kingsley. He gives us downtime studio time. So we would do the graveyard shift when one of the studios was empty. Finally, with those tapes, we get some London management. By now, I'm 26. And it was another, yeah, 18 months before that management company finally got um, one of the Virgin subsidiary companies called Siren to give us a showcase at this big rehearsal studio called No Miss in Shepherd's Bush. So we literally knew four songs that we could play quickly. Um, Ronnie and I didn't have a band around us because Tapau weren't really a band in that sense. It was me and Ronnie. We'd written all the songs and we quickly called on a handful of musicians, two local guys and two guys we'd met in London through our new management. Can you just rehearse up these four songs? We've got a showcase. And, And then we got our deal. I always say it was like an episode of Fame. It was like, you kids are great. Let's do the show right here. And we were like, <laughs> finally, finally got that elusive record deal. And you had to have a record company behind you then. I'm not sure how it works these days, kind of out of the loop. But you needed their their muscle, their financial muscle to make the record and then most importantly promote it, whereas all the, all the money gets spent there, really. Yeah. So you performed under a few band names before one day whilst doing the ironing, Star Trek came on the telly <laughs> and a character comes on called Tapau, and yeah. that became your band name as it was the least worst option that anyone had heard of. That's right. Yeah. But that prompted a lot of uh, Star Trek questions and shenanigans during your first US press tour. I think you, you're yeah. a journalist. You produced a pair of Vulcaneers during your interview. It was bizarre. Yeah, we were. Ha- I had a press junket at the Warwick Hotel, just off 7th in Manhattan. And um, basically they get, you know, they get 10 minutes each as a queue of journalists and stuff and um, a very busy time. And this guy comes in and he has a briefcase, which he puts on the table and, says, and he's quite formal. He says, good afternoon, Miss Decker. Thank you so much for talking to me but in an American accent, obviously. And um, he opens his briefcase. He takes out his um, recording device, places it on the table, takes out a pad, takes out a pen that's all lined up, and then just reaches in, takes out two plastic pointy Mr Spock ears, puts them on, making no reference to them at all. This is the bizarre bit. Closes the briefcase, puts it on the floor, and proceeds to interview me. And doesn't really refer to Star Trek that much in the interview so it's just <laughs> odd and I'm too polite and also very new to the game myself of you know how in what I can do in in interviews and if I can question the journalist or go hang on a minute 
what the fuck's going on here? You know, I did back then I was very well behaved and just sort of did everything I was asked to do. And then he said, well, thank you for the interview. He takes off his ears, pops them back in the briefcase, puts away the pad, the pen, the recording device and leaves. <laughs> and, that was, and it was just very odd because most Trekkies would come up and be all over you with the Star Trek information thinking that I was a Trekkie with a capital T and knew all the things that they knew, which I didn't. And this chap just didn't refer to it all at all. He just wore his pointy ears. Uh, you even got a signed photo from Mr Spock himself, Leonard Nimoy, though, but it had a bit of an unfortunate end. It did. Um, so our record producer, Roy Thomas Baker, and just referencing back to Rockfield Studios where Bohemian Rhapsody was recorded, that was Roy. Roy produced that record amongst many other massive hits. So that's why we chose him. It was such an honour and a little six degrees of separation going back to Rockfield, you know, our start in it. And uh, he knew everybody and everybody knew Roy. You know, he's a big Grammy Award winner and everything. He, he was in the A-list kind of out in Beverly Hills and stuff. And um, he said, oh, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I know Leonard. I'll, I'll get a picture for you. And I was like, oh, my God. So he gets it and it goes um, to Carol and to Powell. Live long and prosper, very best wishes, Leonard Nimoy, you know, written in what I thought was a black Sharpie, you know, which is permanent, isn't it? Yeah. So for the longest time, it was just leaned up against the wall beside my bed, not framed or anything. I kept meaning to get round to it. And then one day, my bedroom was looking really dusty and I thought I'd just flick a, flick a duster around, you know, I got the Mr Sheen sprayed it on the cloth, wiped my tables, and then Leonard was looking a little dusty as well. So I thought, <laughs> really should frame you, Leonard. Let's give you a little wipe, you know. Wiped. It all came off. Like, and there wasn't even, like if you'd have written it in Biro, there might have been some dents <laughs> in the picture that I could have gone over again with a pen. <laughs> but there was nothing. So all I had was a picture of Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> so, yeah, that was... Uh, <laughs> Sad end for Mr. Scott. It was a very sad end, I know, yeah. Uh, so you released Heart and Soul as your first single, which I think is my favourite to power song. Thank it's you. a toss-up between Heart and Soul, only a heartbeat. But, um, yeah. but it didn't chart here originally, and it was only after it was used in a Pepe Jeans advert in America that it became um, a massive hit over there, and then you were on MTV all the time, and then it was re-released here and properly kick-started your career. But it must have been a bit bittersweet because your success in the UK ended up coming at the expense of your US tour because you were forced to cancel it and then yeah. it affected your subsequent success there. It did. Um, but but it's a kind of ball of confusion really. Just, I have to pick up on this, the Pepe Jeans campaign was in the UK. Oh, right, okay. Not America. That's why it got the reprieve because it started climbing up the billboard chart. We went out there to do just press a press tour, like you said, and um, then it got picked up by Pepe Jeans in the UK, which gave it a little bit of cachet. So we got this reprieve and it got re-released in the UK. So you're quite right. It, it just slipped into the top 100 and straight back out again. And this caused a massive Ferrari because RMD of our record company did not like the mixes at all. And him and Roy Thomas Baker had huge arguments about the mixes. So when it um, was a big flop, David Betteridge, RMD, was screaming and effing and blinding, I told you so, I told you so, and we thought we were going to get dropped straight away because they're pretty ruthless in the music business, you know. Um, they'll get rid of you pretty quickly. Um, yeah, so we got this reprieve, and you're right. Um, it was a little bit bittersweet, but not too much because I was savvy enough to know that, you know, if you have a hit in America, it jettisons you around the world. So it was a, f a fantastic opportunity 
So out we go and we're touring and we're doing, you know, we're all in our 20s. We're living on a tour bus. We're having the best fun. We're so badly behaved, I can't tell you. <laughs> and um, so how I'm not dead, I have no idea. How I got to sing this, so I don't know how I reached 65 because I should actually be dead. <laughs> what happens on tour stays on tour. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And then, yeah, we, um, it was all very sly. So um, we got told they want you on Top of the Pops and we're cock-a-hoop at this, as you can imagine, because Top, Top of the Pops was the programme. Heart and Soul is starting to fly up the UK chart. We need you back off the tour. We even left all our stuff there. So don't worry, we're flying you back for the next gig. Our tour manager stayed out there. Several of the wives had flown over to join us on the tour. So all the wives stayed out there. All our clothes stayed out there. Our tour manager stayed out there because we were doing Top of the Pops and flying back. And then we got taken out for supper after the show and the record company and our manager said, you're not going back. We would need to keep you to capitalise on what's happening in Europe. And as it was told to me, you don't fuck around with, with American, you know, uh, promoters. They don't take kindly to it. And we never got an opportunity to go back there. But I think that's partly because of the way we were managed. I can't imagine that all American promoters sort of got together and had a meeting and said, don't ever let power work in the country again. <laughs> you know, it was just um, a catalogue of great things happening to us that were then really badly handled. And so parts of our career did not expand out as they could have and should have due to some very bad decision making. Heart and Soul, such an unusual sound at the time compared to other songs in the chart, like Rick Astley was number one at the time mm. with Never Gonna Give You Up. It was very predominantly very pop. What was the genesis of that song? Um, funnily enough, I was on holiday with my parents in Marbella and Ronnie and I had not long met as a couple so you know how intense a relationship is at the beginning so I'm in the hellhole that is Marbella <laughs> sitting on a beach broken hearted <laughs> and I look out as the sea is washing up and I just came up with this more than an you know more than an ocean keeps us apart that bit more than an ocean keeps us apart so I came up with the melodic side of a song because I, I think in songs you know, I think in songs. And I came up with how I was feeling that, you know, I feel a tearing in half of my heart that even though I was in this beautiful place and should be having such a great time, I missed Ronnie so much that I was writing this, you know, love song to him. So when I got home, um, I sort of jotted that down, played really bad piano like I do, recorded it on a tape recorder. And we started to muck about with it. And then my dad had lent us some money for a new keyboard. I think it was a JX3P, I think so. Um, anyway, it had a thing in it called a sequencer. So a sequencer is where you can play some notes and then press a button and it just repeats itself. It just goes on, you know, ad infinitum. So Ron was mucking around with the sequencer and he was going bom, bom, ba, ba, bom, 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 ba, ba, bom, 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 which is the bass line, you know. So we just let that riff and riff and riff. And then I think I came up with the ba, 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 ba. Da -da 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 on the keyboards and then we lay that vocal the melodic vocal across that and then we felt it needed other bits to fill in the gaps like more percussion and we were working with a producer called Andy Piercy and he said let's do percussion we're trying all sorts of percussion things um this is on the second draft of the demo and he said it needs like 
another vocal, like a percussive vocal. So I went away and it took me like about two days to write the percussive sort of rap kind of vocal, you know, something in the moon, like catches my eye, that kind of thing. So it took a long time to to pull all the bits of that song together and make them sit nicely in the pockets where they're meant to be so that you're actually listening to two vocals at the same time, but you can hear them both, which, again, is testament to Roy Thomas Baker and his amazing mm. engineer at the time. And then you released China in Your Hand, which, of course, went to number one. Yeah. And there was a period when you kept George Harrison off the number one spot in the singles chart. And at the same time, you also kept Paul McCartney's album from being number one too. So you can legitimately say you were bigger than the Beatles. Yeah, which made us bigger than Jesus because the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. Yeah, uh, that's on my wall. I'm very proud of that. It, it's our it's our music week. Um, the Americans have Billboard and we have Music Week, so I've got that framed and it's it's uh, on the loo wall. And uh, yeah, and we were also number one. Didn't keep anybody suspicious out here, but number one in the dance chart with some awful awful remix of China in Your Hand. It was ghastly, but it seemed to be number one in the dance chart as well. So, yeah, and um, I went on to meet George Harrison, uh, who was really magnanimous about it, shook my hand, and it was at the Prince's Trust. And I did for a short time know the McCartneys when Linda was alive. We were on top of the pops together, and they were very nice. Linda used to send me her Christmas calendars and stuff. And we have a mutual friend who's a big friend of Mary's. So there was a time when I would see Paul, you know, socially and professionally and stuff. I see the family and and he was very magnanimous about it as well. But I think they could allow me my little five minutes. They they had a, they did all right, didn't they? They did all right for themselves, yeah. yeah. They're all right. Uh, but everything went so crazy for you. I think at one point you needed a decoy when you went out. Did you send like a band member out in a red wig? We did. We did from Hammersmith Odeon. The uh, crowds were backstage were just really deep. I always call it my five minutes of being Madonna, you know. And um, we had to get in a car and I think either go home or go to a hotel, I can't remember. And so we sent Wob, his name was Wob with a wobble you. And we had a red wig and a leather jacket and we had my bodyguards bundle him into the back of a big car with darkened windows so that it in the sort of um, half light of the backstage alley behind the Hamiodian, it looked like me. And so, and the press went chasing after the car and I had all that. And I, there used to be... Um, when I lived in North London, there's a lot of cars on the street, street parking, and there was a time when they were um, out hiding behind the cars with cameras trying to get you sort of picture of you bringing the milk in in your curlers with a fag hanging out, a bit of a Hilda Ogden <laughs> moment. You know, that was back in those days. Yeah, I had my my moments then. In, um, in your autobiography, you admitted to letting the power of being a star go to your head a bit. Can you share the story of Twiglet Gate, please? <laughs> <laughs> that was probably actually fatigue more than when I say let it go to my head I mean I just really enjoyed it I was just a bit full of myself I don't think I was ever mean to anybody hope not but Twiglet Gate yeah so when you go on a big tour you take everything with you and you take your own catering people you know um, and they're fantastic out of these flight cases come full kitchens cookers everything so you know backstage at Wembley there'll be a kitchen all of a sudden appears and they cook whatever you want and um you know all this is agreed before you go on tour what meals they can do while we're away and also you have your rider so this is the stuff that's in your dressing room so your snacks your drinks your bits and your bobs you know just to keep you going uh before showtime and I had a thing about twiglets absolutely love twiglets you know and so we'd been out in Germany for a long time and and 
to be honest, like I say, I was a bit knackered. I was a bit tired and emotional. And for about four nights, I'd had crisps in my room. And I wasn't happy. <laughs> so I went stomping, you know, off to... <laughs> Somebody annoyed me and I went stomping off with my tour manager going, what the fuck is this? This is crisps. They're not even English because they were German crisps, you know. And I said, <laughs> it says Twiglets on my rider. I'm paying for all of this. I'm paying for everybody's fucking wages. When I say Twiglets, I want Twiglets. <laughs> and this is a reference to a film called Spinal Tap, which um, if you haven't seen it, you might not get it. But Jenny, my tour manager, turned to me and went, and is the meat too big for your bread, Carol? Because <laughs> in Spinal Tap, you know, Nigel's like trying to fiddle with this tiny bread and massive piece of meat and it's causing them a lot of problems. So that was my Spinal Tap, is the meat too big for your bread problem. And um, when my book came out, Twiglets, I think it's Jacobs, who made yes. them, sent, sent me a huge box of Twiglets <laughs> like that. It took me a year to finish, so... There you go. Uh, speaking of bread, did you have a bread roll fight with the Cure as well at one point? Yeah, we did at the Brits. Um, they didn't like us at all. And the Brits, when I used to do the Brits, was a very boozy affair. People and God knows what else. People used to get a bit out of you know um, out of control. And we were on a table with Fergal Sharkey, and the Cure were on the table next to us. And uh, and with all, you know, I know, I know the lineup of The Cure has changed a lot down the years, like most bands, so I, I don't even know if that person's still in the band. I don't think it was Robert. And it hurts so much because I love their music. This is what really hurts when somebody you really admire thinks you're a wanker. <laughs> it really hurts. <laughs> and they started throwing bre bread rolls at us and calling us shit, and they'd said this one band member had said horrible things about China in your hand in some kind of single review that he'd done. So Fergal Sharkey, and you won't mind my saying this, stood up and looked at them. You know all the make they were very goth yeah. looking? And Fergal Sharkey stood up and went, what the fuck's the problem with the Adams family? <laughs> <laughs> so more bread rolls came over. We threw them back. And then I think there might have been some fruit involved, you know. And then um, I, I can't remember who calmed it down. I think various assistants calmed us all down and we just all ignored each other after that, you know. But Very rock and roll. Yeah, very rock and roll, yeah. So very rock and roll. You you became used to being limoed around and flying on private jets. But yeah. your first experience on a private jet wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And I guess you kind of suffered more because you're a woman. Yes. So we were so excited. So we're flying, again, very busy schedule. We're going from Top of the Pops and we're going out to, I think it was Munich, um, to do whatever their version of Top of the Pops was, you know. And so uh, schedule, there wasn't a scheduled flight that fitted our, our schedule. So they get a private jet. This is fantastic. And, oh, my God, you know, I can't get over myself. And it's just we're escorted. We don't even go through the main terminal. We go through some secret door. And, very, you know, it's all very um, a bit like the royal family. And um, we get on the plane and there's champagne everywhere. Like there's these sort of in the walls of the plane, there's these little holders and the champagne and glasses and beer and water. And and um, even though it was a very small plane, there was a hostess settling us in, making sure we had drinks. And we're absolutely caning it. We were big drinkers in the band. And I have the smallest bladder in the world. I need to go to the toilet at least every half an hour. In fact, <laughs> I want to go to the toilet now because <laughs> I've had two coffees. <laughs> um and so I'm like, I look, I'm thinking it's back, you know, the back of the plane and there's nothing there, nothing there. We've got another hour to go. And I was, the boys went and peed in bottles at the back of the plane, you know. 
Um, but I was literally crying. My stomach was swollen up like someone who shoved a football up there. And I was literally crying Aww. with the pain. I could barely walk <laughs> to the airport when I got to, to Munich. And then I was like the milkman's horse, as my dad used to say. <laughs> Such a relief. <laughs> yeah. So what I will say to you, dear listener, is next time you're on a private jet, do check if there's a lavatory <laughs> before you start guzzling the champers. <laughs> OK, it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latter zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. Right. It's a peculiar thing the press, where when you're on your way up, they love to help you up there and everyone wants a piece of you. But once you're there, they can't wait to tear you down again. Mm -hmm. And you experienced a lot of that backlash from the credible, in quotes, music press after yeah. you kind of started appearing everywhere because you were so popular. Yeah, it's when you become ubiquitous. Um, and see, we, particularly me and Ronnie, we have a very eclectic songwriting style. We don't stick to a genre do you know what I mean? Mm. And back then, that was problematic. You know, well, what are you? You know, so I was on the cover of Kerrang, right, which was a big heavy metal magazine for Sex Talk and Monkey House, which were very rocky tracks and they loved it. I was also on the cover of Smash Hits and number one magazine for Heart and Soul and the pop side of us. And um, then I was in Key Magazine. I was on the cover of Melody Maker. I was everywhere for all different reasons, really. And we became a bit ubiquitous. And that irritated some of the, quote unquote, credible press. They just didn't like us. They didn't like what we did. They thought we, would, we weren't moody enough. Do you know what I mean? We didn't go around snarling. We were just sort of affable cheerful pop rock band who couldn't believe their luck and like getting pissed all the time that's that was really the, the, you know that's what we were and they did um pick on us particularly on me and the things that were written about me with the way things have gone now with cancel culture and bullying and all the rest of it not all of which I approve of may I say I still think you know you've got to take take your knocks sometimes and not not scream for someone to be fired because of it. But they would write horrible things about me, sort of how I looked or how I dressed or something like that. And I remember one particular interview I did for Network 7, which was a programme produced by Janet Street Porter, which was like a youth, you know, culture thing. And Paul Morley, then a very famous music journalist, was yeah. interviewing me live on air. And we were chatting before we went on air and he was really nervous. He was quite sweaty because it was live TV and he hadn't done it before. And I, by then, was a veteran. And I said, I oh, don't worry, it's just a conversation. It's just a conversation, you know. I, I won't give you a hard time. Just So we sat down and had my coffee and stuff. And his opening gambit was, um, you've lied about your age, which I never did, but the people around me did. My PR team did. And then he said, um, and why do you wear such short skirts? Is it to take everybody's mind off the fact that your music is crap? Gosh. So he wouldn't dare do that now. Mm. He wouldn't be allowed to do that now, particularly to a woman, you know. And um, my biggest regret is not tipping the red hot coffee that I had in my hand over his head. Mm. Because, again, I was, I was programmed to be a good little pop star smooth over the interview try and I, I'd quickly think how do I turn this around and make, make it work not make it worse 
but that's one regret I have. He should have been wearing wearing my coffee. He was incredibly rude. Mm. Uh, I won't dwell on it too long, but um, it was a difficult bitter end for the band. You were dropped by your label while on tour and relationships within the band had broken down, which I guess is to be expected when you're with the same people day in, day out for years. And then you throw money into the mix and it all kind of implodes. Yes. must have been sad times though to... Yes, it was. And um, a lot of my peers who I talk to will tell you the same story that you are many, many, many bands, much bigger than To Power as well. You're like the three, four, five, six, seven musketeers, whatever, you know. You you spend more time together than with your own families and wives and kids. You you know each other inside out. You're incredibly close. Then it all gets on top of you. And then it finds out, you know, as you get become successful, only a few of you wrote the songs. So the people who were just paid performers in the band, they see you making much more money than they are. They resent that, even though they haven't got the right to. Because as I said to to the boys that played for me and Ronnie, I don't remember you in that damp flat in Shrewsbury writing any of these songs. So why you think you should get any of that money, I have no idea. Because our songs were written a couple of years before we even met them. And they were all on really, really good salaries. And like you say, it's hard to dwell on it now because it's a long time ago and I've we have made our peace with each other, several of us. So if this goes out, you know, it's it's unlike the book, I felt slightly uncomfortable writing the book because I was writing years after we'd made our peace with each other. I had to go over the war of attrition between us. So we'd be in the studio recording The Promise the phone would ring in the control room and it would be the boy's solicitor. So the four of them would leave the room and then come back in all quiet. Then the phone would ring again after a period of time where their solicitor had spoken to our solicitor and the phone would ring and they'd go, Karen Ronnie, your solicitor's on the phone, would you like to take it? And it was like the most awful divorce and I really regret that. We we should have just had it out face to face. Um that the time felt that that would be worse, but I don't think it would. So you you have a big fucking fight and call each other some names, but at least it's honest, isn't it? And it's face to face. So I I regret that we didn't thrash it out between us more directly. Was there a sense of unfinished business because your music career with the band was effectively taken away from you as opposed to leaving on your own terms? Oh God, yeah, I felt like I was made redundant. You know, that that's a horrible feeling. I remember my father was made redundant in the 70s and it's like people have gone, we don't want you anymore. We don't like what you do anymore. So thanks, but bye. You know, that's the bitter truth, isn't it? And the music business is very fickle and that large part of my career and all even prior to the actual hit. So if you go from when we got our big management in 86 through to the last album in in 91. You know, that's quite a lot of years of enjoying that intense life and and expectation of success after you've had, you know, some hit records. And then when it's all over, it's really, it is really hard to deal with. And I've never made any secret of it being hard for me because it's all I ever wanted, you know, it's all I ever wanted. And I had it for, for what felt like five minutes and then, it was over and you're left kind of trying to figure out where you go from there, really, if you're not yeah. a big old pop star anymore, you know? Yeah. As you just mentioned, you, know, you, you have spoken about 
struggling um, with that after emotionally in terms of dealing with losing the identity you had with Tapao and then wanting to get going again, getting back into the charts as a, as a solo artist. Um, and then to kind of add on top of that, you split up with Ronnie, who was also your writing partner. You found yourself in a subsequent volatile relationship. Um, and you wrote in your autobiography that you turned to alcohol and drugs to cope. Yeah, well, I'd never taken drugs ever um, in my life, but I'd always enjoyed a drink. And it doesn't take you long to realise that a substance it takes you temporarily away from your thoughts doesn't it you know especially a drink big old glass of wine you suddenly go phew you know and it all disappears but it's all there waiting for you later and I did I had my first line of cocaine when I was 38 years old so I was a senile delinquent <laughs> and thank god I didn't discover it when I was young because I loved it I absolutely loved it you know so I was just <laughs> So I was just partying all the time, which is just putting a big sort of elastoplast on the problem, really, isn't it? And you just come, the higher you go, the further down you fall when you wake up the next day. Yeah, so, but it was a hard time. It makes me laugh. Um, there's a there's a far show sketch where they're in therapy and everybody unburdens themselves. And one of the characters goes, anyone fancy a pint? <laughs> so I feel... I feel like that and that part of the book because it was true. My dad died suddenly of a heart attack. My career went down the toilet. The record company dumped me and then Ron turned around and said he didn't know if he was in love with me anymore. And it's a bit like anyone fancy a bite. <laughs> it's just like really gloomy and depressing. Um, so, but it wasn't, it, yeah, everything came crashing down around me uh, professionally and personally, everything. You you later reconciled Ronnie and you released another Tapao album in 2015 after a very long yeah. pause in between two. Um, but you viewed yourself for a long time as a failed pop star and you suffered from a crippling lack of confidence. And yeah. you said that you've now accepted you had a, a glorious moment in the sun and you're not embarrassed that you didn't sustain it. What was it ultimately that led you to make peace with it? Um, in 97, um, I met a guy in the pub at the end of my road. Um, his name's Will Ashurst. And he works for some bloke called Ed Sheeran now. I, I think he, he's trying to break through, you know. <laughs> wish him well. Wish him luck. Yeah, I think I've heard of him. <laughs> anyway, Will, Will clearly likes a redhead. Yeah. So anyway, Will, um, he'd worked for record companies. He had a video production company. And he recognised me and just got chatting to me at, at the bar and it was became his local, it was my local, and we'd get chatting. And then we started, he said, well, what are you doing? You know, and he left working for, I think, EMI. And he had his own company. And he's like, well, you know, we became really good friends. And I said, I don't, I don't know where to go. I, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm out of favour. I didn't even get my phone calls returned anymore. You know, so no one was interested in me. Sent a few, wrote with a few of the people, sent some tapes off. Nobody really liked it. I didn't really like it either. I don't think I was choosy enough I was just trying to write and send things off and then Will just said let's get you back working and he put a little band around me and I started to gig and it was just clubs just clubs but I started to build my confidence back up and I remembered how much I liked live performance which I always have done you know he then introduced me to my now husband who quickly got me pregnant so Will was really furious <laughs> <laughs> He'd invested all this time and money. And I'm like, uh, Will, sorry. But I was 40, so I thought I'd better crack on with it, you know. And I loved Richard. I was in love. Oh, yeah, this is important. 
I was finally in love again after four years of just feeling, I was just drifting and very unhappy. Met somebody who I got excited about. I was in, I knew I was in love again. I got the butterflies, the whole thing. And uh, we quickly get pregnant. And then a couple of years later, we have our son. So I quiet down a bit again, start acting, doing a bit of radio presentation, television presentation. You know, things started coming back my way just because I was a bit of a name and I could walk and talk at the same time. So I had things to do. I had a wonderful new family. And then um, Will and I had party company, but he put me back on track of having confidence in myself as a performer. And then in 2001, when Scarlett was ooh, three, yeah, um, Dylan wasn't born yet, I got a call from a, a promoter said, I want to do a big 80s tour with uh, Paul Young, Kim Wilde, and Go West and you. And it would be playing all the big arenas that we, we got to the point where we sold them out ourselves back in the 80s. And I thought, oh, yeah, back on the Wembley stage. I'll have a bit of that, you know. So I just jumped on this, it's called Here and Now tour. And then lots more of these, I don't know what people can call them horrible names, nice names, these sort of renaissance of the 80s tours started and haven't stopped. And I just haven't stopped performing. And the love for us 80s pop stars and our songs is is incredible. You know, I've just finished a really, really busy summer of massive festivals. Um, and I'm so grateful for that. And I've come to see myself as a singer and a performer. And I don't have to have, it would be nice, but I don't have to have a record in the charts for people to still want to come and see me and hear me. I just had to learn to appreciate that. I was so programmed, if you don't have a hit record, you're nothing. And you have to relearn who you, who you are on other levels as well, you know. And, of course, being a mum, you know, you've got other things to worry about and it helps to put things in perspective, you know. Yeah. So on the children front, you said that you were allergic to children when you were in the band, <laughs> uh, as I still am, uh, but um, because it didn't fit into your life as it doesn't fit into mine. Uh, but then you yeah. did start a family, as you mentioned, and yeah. you had two children, Scarlett and Dylan, and you went from yeah. being allergic to being the most hands-on protective mama bear ever. Oh, God, I'm a helicopter mom. I'm terrible. <laughs> Scarlett's now 24 and Dylan turned 20 this year and I'm still... Doing the laundry. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think Dylan put his trousers through the wash once, I think. I <laughs> showed him. I said, come on, I'll show you the 20-minute cycle. It's not that difficult, you know. Um, but I do, I just love them and I adore them. And I am a control freak and quite an organised person. And so is my husband. So I just like, um, if I want them to do something, I'm going, we well, got to, you need to, well, can you try? Oh, I'll do it. It'll be much quicker, you know. So I end up sort of, I still do everything because they don't do it quick enough for me, you know. So, uh, yeah, but I was um, I was allergic to children. And, in fact, I put up on my uh, social media feed a while back, Scarlet, um, I've got boxes of press clippings. And there's one where I'm going, I'll never have children. I hate them or something. And she's holding up the newspaper <laughs> like this. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's just I was so ambitious and just not focused on children at all. And And you know what? You can't have it all. If you're going to be as busy as I was, I couldn't have had children. So a lot of the boys in bands and the boys in my band all left the wife at home bringing up the kids. You know, that's the traditional way. Um, I couldn't have had the success I had toward the world as I did 
if I'd had children to worry about. So, no, it's not something that I wanted. And I needed to be in a, a different place in my life to even contemplate it, you know. But I still I still don't remember the biological clock ticking at all. And I hadn't even, I didn't even have to resign myself to never having kids. It just didn't cross my mind to have them. And then Richard and I just, the most discreet way I can put it is we just didn't try to stop it from happening. <laughs> Uh, outside of music, you also parade into acting, both on TV and film. Yeah. So nine dead gay guys that you were shagged to death by Stephen Burkoff. I was. <laughs> and you broke the headboard. <laughs> My mother was so proud. Yeah. Yeah, we broke the headboard. So I, I, it was a silly part. I didn't, you know, I was trying to get into acting for a while and uh, I just, it was, I don't even think I had any lines in it, you know, and uh it was just a cut to Stephen Burkoff um, doing terrible things. And, yeah, we, we had to do this really violent shagging scene where I actually die. And, um, and we were using someone's flat as a location. It was, you know, people rent out their homes for film and stuff. And it was a beautiful sort of French bed. And we snapped it in half. <sighs> oh, dear. Um, it's come a bit full circle because you mentioned at the start you were first signed by Virgin Records or a subsidiary of Virgin Records and yeah. in March you performed on an 80s themed cruise on a Virgin cruise ship um, <laughs> and uh, I'm a bit of a cruiser myself I actually got on that ship the following sailing after you Ah, um, and I keep missing you because I also missed you by a couple of weeks last summer when you performed on a princess ship well, get it together. I know. Well, I I don't plan who the I don't schedule their guests. We had Jenny Eclair on our sailing and um, Rob Rinder, so it was fine. We were happy. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, but how do you find those sorts of gigs compared to on land? Because on a ship, fans can hunt you down in the buffet and, uh, and corner you. Whereas well, at least on stage, you can walk away. <laughs> there, there is that. They are they are very pleased to see you wherever you go, but. It's not out of hand. It's not like those old days where I had to run away and hide from people. Most people will just come up, say they love you, they love your songs, do you mind a quick picture, and then they leave you alone. It's it's fine, you know. But the one cruise we did recently, which was last year, there was a sort of a, there was a mask policy, and I know that Toya and and Claire Grogan really enjoyed that because they, they, they went around the ship shopping and stuff without getting recognised. So they really took Incognito, it yeah. Yeah, incognito, exactly. They took advantage of that. But no, it, it is for the main now. Um, people are just lovely. They're absolutely lovely. And they, they take the time and trouble to come up and tell me what my music has meant to them. So I'm not going to grumble about that. And most people know when it's time to end the conversation and let you get back to your own guests you know just before we finish last question i'd love it if you could please share the story of when you met princess diana at the princess trust gala that you mentioned a little bit earlier in 1989 and the top tip she gave you when posing for pictures oh well diana was lovely she was utterly utterly charismatic and i'm, I'm not just putting on rose tinted glasses you know remembering i i just i'm not a massive royalist by that i'm not an anti-monarchist either I, they're just kind of there for me, you know, I didn't really give them much thought. And, and you know, she'd got quite a lot of bad press. Oh, she just had a, an O-level in hamster washing or something. People were very mean about her intellect and stuff like that. She was witty, naturally funny. She was great. And uh, at the end of the show, we all had to do the sort of um, ubiquitous photograph um, for the archives. And I was stood just behind her. And the photographer said, 
say cheese. And she turned to me and said, say bitch, you get a sexier smile. (laughs) (laughs) She's absolutely great. Amazing. She's lovely. Yeah. Carol, it's been so lovely talking with you today. Thank you so much. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Big thanks again to Carol for joining me. You can find more news about Tapau and their upcoming shows on their website, tapau.co.uk. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you'd like to support the show, please visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate. But the biggest way you can help is by just not keeping the podcast to yourself. Please share it with a friend or on social media so that others can discover and enjoy it too. And of course, if you could please hit that subscribe or follow button on your podcast player, it's totally free. Leave a five-star rating or a nice review. That would really help me out. And don't be afraid to say hello on Twitter or Instagram. Drop me a message and we can have a chat. Until next time. Thanks for listening.